This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, December 8th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. The attempts to regulate Bitcoin in the United States so far have largely been stymied. That doesn't mean it won't happen. Will Luther, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, discusses a few of the arguments for regulating Bitcoin and how well they stand up to scrutiny. Bitcoin has not really caught on as a consumer product for everyday exchange. Yeah, that's right. And um, there are now competing services with the uh, the new chips that uh, phones have in them. You just had one of those phones out <laughs> before we started recording. That Visa has its its way of, of paying. Apple Pay has its way. Citibank has its way of paying using a phone. And it, it seems completely reasonable to me that Bitcoin with minor adjustments by some entrepreneur could be that kind of product. Um, but there are some specific arguments for regulating Bitcoin that are offered by uh, New York Senator Chuck Schumer, among others. Uh, so what are those arguments for regulating Bitcoin and uh, how strong are they? Well, first, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's important to think about Bitcoin in, in two distinct ways. First, as a payment mechanism and second, as a monetary unit. Uh, so as a payment mechanism, we're talking about how do you uh, credit one account and debit another to make a payment. Um, electronic payments aren't new, right? You've had um, electronic funds transfers for uh, a while now, uh, certainly debit cards as well. And so you're seeing that technology be adopted in new ways, but uh, it, it is, you know, an electronic transfer. Um, the monetary unit is what is actually being exchanged. And so in the case of Bitcoin, it's this unit called a Bitcoin. In case of um, you know, your, your debit card, you're talking about dollars. Uh, so there are those two unique aspects of, of Bitcoin um, as a payment mechanism, which I think you're, you're right, that technology could be adopted um, uh, to process payments more generally, not just in Bitcoin, but with dollars. And you see companies like Ripple doing that. Um, but the, the monetary unit is certainly distinct. Now, uh, as for the regulatory justifications, they usually come in three categories. Uh, first is uh, consumer protection, um, which um, can be articulated a couple different ways. Some people are concerned about the purchasing power volatility of Bitcoin. Others are concerned about how precise, uh, how, how uh, secure your uh, funds uh, actually are. And um, some are even concerned that the Bitcoin protocol doesn't allow you to issue chargebacks in the event that, say, you uh, purchase a, a latte that uh, you know had whole milk instead of skim milk. Um, now, that I think is, uh, if there is a compelling reason uh, to regulate Bitcoin, that might be it, <laughs> because there are, you know, the money doesn't go to someone else until it leaves your account, and there is no mechanism at least within the protocol. That's right. To do that, but of course there are companies that are working to alleviate that problem and provide some build guarantees onto the protocol. That's right. To some extent that chargeback issue is a feature not a bug, right? Um, there are some places around the world where they where individuals don't have access to a, 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 a sound banking system and so Amazon would be happy to ship you a pair of alpaca socks anywhere, um, but they can't be secure that the payment they received is going to be final if you don't have access to a sound uh, banking system. And so having access to a currency like Bitcoin that doesn't enable 
chargebacks might actually be beneficial to some consumers because now they can say, look, I've sent you the money. I can't get it back. Please send me the product now. Uh, and that might be better than the alternative they have. But you're right. Some companies have um, started escrow services. And so you send the Bitcoin to an escrow service, the package gets sent, and then the escrow service releases the funds. Um, uh, you know, once you've uh, certified that you're satisfied. Um, so although the Bitcoin protocol itself doesn't uh, enable chargebacks to the extent that chargebacks are desirable, individuals develop ancillary institutions to, to accomplish that. And to some extent, that's built into a business's contract with Visa or other credit card providers that is, you know, it's our, we have written the law of how Visa is to be used between you and and the consumer. That's right. And, you know, we also have to talk, if we're going to talk about chargeback, we have to talk about chargeback fraud, which is a, a big problem to uh, for small businesses. So, um, you know, one reason that merchant account fees are so high is because um, Visa, MasterCard, these companies have to deal with some uh, chargeback fraud and they build that into the price that they charge merchants to process transactions. And so it seems a bit odd that we should say everyone should have to pay for uh, chargeback fraud because we're going to have chargeback uh, and not allow some people to say, you know what, I'm not going to commit chargeback fraud uh, and I would be happy using a payment um, mechanism that doesn't even permit me to, to make chargebacks um, because I don't think that that's a big problem for me. What are some of the other justifications for regulating Bitcoin? Well, um, I would say the biggest justification actually, and this is one that, um, that, that Schumer has raised and, and more recently some economists, uh, Eugene Fama and Richard Thaler have uh, um, both basically concluded that Bitcoin is only valuable for, for crooks and tax cheats. <laughs> so um, uh, if you want to prevent illegal transactions and transfers, um, the idea is that you need to regulate Bitcoin. Because you can move giant sum of Bitcoin as easily as you could move $5. Uh, yeah, perhaps even more easily, right? Because it's uh, a digital balance. Um, so you can send it anywhere around the world in um, um, a matter of seconds. So, um, so how does that compare to physical cash as a means of uh, enabling uh, fraudsters and tax cheats and criminals. Yeah, so there are two two big issues here. First is uh, the magnitude issue, and you're uh, absolutely right to bring that up. Um, so if you look at the Silk Road, that's easily the biggest um, marketplace for illegal substances that you could purchase with um, Bitcoin. And uh, when it was in operation, the Silk Road um, estimates put the transaction volume at around $4.7 million a month. Now, that sounds like a lot of money. But in fact, in terms of uh, the total amount of Bitcoin transactions that were taking place, uh, I, I've calculated the Silk Road transaction volume to be just 0.03% of total Bitcoin transactions. Now, let's compare that with the dollar. So the best estimates of how much physical cash or the, or the fraction of physical cash that's being used to support the domestic underground economy, that is those crooks and tax cheats that uh, Thaler and, and Fama are presumably concerned with, uh, yeah, that's around 48% of all cash in circulation. And so in terms of magnitude, uh, if it's the crooks and tax cheats you're worried about, you should be much more concerned with the, the U.S. dollars, physical cash, than uh, Bitcoin's digital balance. Isn't a part of that the problem of Bitcoin adoption? 
That is to say, uh, Bitcoin is not that widely adopted and therefore these uh, avenues for using it in a criminal enterprise, isn't that, uh, isn't that part of the issue? Well, I mean, so we're looking at the fraction of transactions of the total Bitcoin economy. And so uh, you would have to, um, I mean, if Bitcoin replaced the dollar entirely, then yeah, perhaps you're right that, you know, if, if we're going to engage in this illegal activity, if we're engaging in it now, um, I, I don't think that Bitcoin would cause it to go away. Um, and so, so yes, the, the illegal transactions uh, fraction might increase. But there's another aspect of Bitcoin here that isn't widely appreciated by those regulators uh, concerned with this particular issue. And that's the whole idea of anonymity with Bitcoin. So especially in the early days of Bitcoin, everyone said, well, you have an anonymous payment mechanism. So um, you have people uh, purchasing pot online and will never find out who they are. But that's strictly speaking not true. Bitcoin is not anonymous. It's uh, pseudonymous, um, quasi-anonymous perhaps, uh, but not anonymous. Um, don't take my word for it. Just uh, Google Ross William Albrecht, right? Here's a guy who was engaged in criminal activities. Uh, he was running the Silk Road, a site where transactions were conducted in Bitcoin. And he was arrested. They found him. He clearly wasn't anonymous. Um, in fact, uh, once you identify who the user is, you can see every transaction they've ever made. And so to that extent, it's less anonymous than traditional payment mechanisms, especially cash. You know, I've had this discussion with uh, Jerry Brito, among others, about this subject. And it's hard for me to figure out whether the fact that Bitcoin is decentralized, there are companies that make use of the protocol to build a business upon, but the fact there is no central uh, company that members of Congress can shake down, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's that's uh, uh, puts regulation as more likely or less likely. Yeah, um, so that goes both ways, right? On the one hand, uh, you you don't want to encourage. Um, identification for shakedowns. On the other hand, uh, you might want to encourage um, identification for legitimate um, uh, litigation. Uh, and so I think most people who are engaged in business activities where there is a possibility that litigation will be an outcome, um, they know who they're working with. They're not engaged in anonymous exchange. Anonymous exchange tends to be small value, uh, you know, you, you might stop into your bodega and uh, and, and buy a, a soda and a bag of chips without getting all of the identification <laughs> information of the person selling you that uh, because at the end of the day, the, the scope for loss is, is pretty low. Uh, but when we're talking about large-scale exchange, even to the extent that Bitcoin um, or other cryptocurrencies would enable you to obscure your identity in just narrowly in terms of the payment mechanism, you're going to have ancillary institutions again that uh, where individuals are identifying themselves outside of the payment mechanism uh, in order to conduct those exchanges. All right. So what is this other argument for regulation? Okay. So the last uh, argument for regulation is to promote broader macroeconomic stability. So there are kind of two aspects of that. One is a budgetary aspect. So the the Federal Reserve um, is a profitable institution and it remits almost all of its profits to the Treasury. Um, 
Uh, and so, uh, okay, if people started using Bitcoin and stopped using dollars, the Fed would earn less profit and therefore it would remit less profit to the treasury. But practically speaking, the remittances are a pittance. In, in 2013, for example, it was um, just under $80 billion. And that's a high number. Historic would would be a high oh, number yeah, historic. Yeah, it's you know this is uh, uh, on the heels of the Fed massively expanding its balance sheet, purchasing mortgage-backed securities and uh, and and uh, other um, riskier but also uh, higher return uh, assets. And so um, they re, you know they booked record profits and and transferred um, record levels of remittances. So even in this very um, uh, lush period of uh, Fed remittances, we're still talking about uh, less than half a percent of current federal government expenditures, and so uh, we're not we're not making a debt. Uh, we're, we're not making a dent in the in the in government debt um, by losing these uh, remittances. It seems to me that 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 particular argument seems to be a little self-serving for, uh, if not Congress, then the Federal Reserve, uh, not because of these remittances, but because there is an avenue for hedging the U.S. dollar that no central bank controls. Well, yeah. So that takes us to the second um, aspect of this promoting broader macroeconomic stability, the uh, the monetary side of things. Um, but that that justification, at least in terms of promoting macroeconomic stability, doesn't hold much water. On the one hand, uh, pretty much all of our macroeconomic models um, find monetary disturbances taking uh, effect through some type of sticky prices. Uh, and to date, prices are still quoted in dollars. And so even if individuals are using Bitcoin as a payment mechanism, they're not widely using the monetary unit. In fact, uh, a lot of businesses who do use Bitcoin as a monetary unit, it's uh, just on the front end. On the back end, they have a, a dollar value associated with the item and it updates um, given the current exchange rate between Bitcoins and dollars. They even have some digital price tags that uh, retail stores can um, uh, use that update prices on the rack instantaneously given the current market exchange rate of, of Bitcoin. And a lot of businesses that accept Bitcoin immediately turn that into dollars. Yeah, they actually, they accept Bitcoin without receiving Bitcoin. So some intermediary like Coinbase will process the transaction. So you might pay in Bitcoin, um, but the uh, recipient never actually receives the Bitcoin. That that Bitcoin is trans uh, transferred to dollars and uh, and then sent on to the recipient. And so... Uh, there's there's very little concern there, uh, since Bitcoin isn't used as a monetary unit, uh, that it would be uh, you know generating macroeconomic instability. Who wants to regulate Bitcoin? My in my imagination, it's Visa and Mastercard and Discover and these huge payment processors. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that uh, you know I'm willing to say that a lot of the regulation that's uh, been proposed has uh, at least initially been. Um, put forward by folks who are genuinely interested in the in in the in the public interest. Uh, in fact, a lot of you know big payment processors and and banks, especially early on, um, weren't too interested in 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 Bitcoin or blockchain technology at all. They thought that it was going to you know just be a passing fad, and that it it 
they couldn't that it couldn't compete with their business. M- more recently, um, a lot of these companies have decided, wait a second, this blockchain thing is actually uh, an effective way of processing transactions, and so we should adopt that technology. And so um, they went from uh, being naive and uninterested in Bitcoin uh, or, or blockchain technology more generally to being very interested but proponents of, of blockchain technology for the most part. And so you, you see a lot of these companies uh, adopting the technology, and so they have more of a, an, an interest in uh, making sure that the regulatory burden isn't uh, as high as it might otherwise be. And in some countries around the world, it seems that as they're sort of grappling with this, especially countries that are that are developing, they've taken widely divergent views about how Bitcoin ought to be treated. Yeah, that's right. So uh, Bitcoin is um, banned in Russia. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, and, um, and, and banks aren't allowed to, uh, at least uh, government banks aren't allowed to um, uh, deal with Bitcoin in China. And so there's not a, a retail ban on Bitcoin in China, but there is this institutional ban. Um, but, you know, elsewhere, it's either uh, completely legal or uh, uncertain as to its uh, legal environment. And that uncertainty is perhaps um, more damning than the uh, certainty that it's illegal because there's a lot of uh, just stop and wait going on where you have all these gains that might be realized by having a better payment mechanism. Um, but they're not realized because people are worried that as soon as they put in the investments to uh, to make use of this technology that it'll be stamped out by regulators. Will Luther is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to this and other Cato podcasts with the new Cato Audio app for iOS devices and at Cato.org.